You're listening to This Is Personal, Rewinding a Life with Dan Simon. And so my kindergarten teacher told me she didn't want me because I didn't have any imagination and I didn't know how to be social. And, um, you know, which is hysterical because I'm quite the social being. But well, and, um, and, and hopefully she didn't tell you that directly. Well, she told it, she told my mother and I was sitting in the room. Um, but what I got to do with the kids is to show them how to believe in something that they couldn't see. And as I left that job and started my coaching practice a few years later, that's exactly what I asked my clients to do as the confidence coach. Um, that is, I asked them to believe in something they couldn't see and that was usually their value. The premises of my coaching practice is that confident people ask for help. And confidence yeah. actually comes from the word, Latin word confidere which means to trust. And so confidence is truly not self-esteem. Confidence is trusting that you will be supported. And I know that's true because we're sitting here having this conversation. So you and I have both been supported throughout our entire lives in every moment, even if it didn't feel good, um, because we're sharing this one. And so if confident people ask for help, it's because they believe or they trust that the support they need even though they don't, it doesn't always look like they thought it would, shows up. And so confidence is trusting that you will be supported and self-esteem is believing that you are worthy of the support. Welcome to This Is Personal, Rewinding a Life, a podcast about people's personal journeys of discovery and recreation. I'm Dan Simon. We dig deep to understand the essence of each guest. How did they get to this point in their life? We all have stories to tell about our own lives that help the rest of us realize who we are and what we could become. As a life coach, I've always been intrigued by the stories people tell. What were the trials, tragedies, and triumphs they encountered while navigating through life? There are no mistakes in life, only experiences and lots of contrast. If we can have compassion, for others, can't we have the same for ourselves? That's always been my personal mission, to remind people the truth of who they are, to remind them that they've done their very best. In each episode, that's what you'll find, a beautiful soul doing their best to create a life that's fulfilling and rewarding. On today's show, we have Sheila Kennedy, a 48-year-old ball of fire, a mother, an author, an editor, a publisher, shares what she has learned along the way in her life. She now calls herself the confidence coach, and she asks people to believe in what they can't actually see. But early in life, she was told she had no imagination, no creativity. Then she was told over and over again to not show emotion, to not be vulnerable, that appearance is everything. Falling apart is not an option, no matter how tragic the circumstances are around that befall you. Learn how Sheila overcame these early messages to create a beautiful life for herself, her family, and her clients. Enjoy the show today. On today's show, we are with Sheila Kennedy. Sheila, welcome. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Great to have you today. To start off with, if you had to tell us the most important things about yourself in six sentences, what would those six sentences be? <laughs> Well, I would probably start with I am a mother. 
that is probably the most important thing about me. I write books, I edit books, I publish books. Uh, those are, that's what, four? <laughs> um, and I also am a survivor and I believe in sharing what I've learned. And I do things the hard way so that other people don't have to. And you say, when you say you do things the hard way, is that past tense? You used to do things the hard way, so oh, now no. so other people don't have to, or you still like to do it the hard way? No, I still like to learn the hard way. Yeah, okay. I'm a big fan, apparently. Um, <laughs> I have this intimate relationship with Murphy's Law, and um, that'll be a book I write someday, My Affair with Murphy. And, um, you know, because he just likes to show up in my life, and I, I keep welcoming him back, so... <laughs> So you're saying on the surface, it may be that uh, lots of things appear to have gone wrong in your life or have been very challenging. All right. Well, well, I'll tell you what, none of them, they've all been on purpose. And yes, I've had a lot of challenging events in my life. However, they've all pointed me towards something good. And I'm very grateful for the challenges that I have because I wouldn't be the person that I am without them. Well, that couldn't be a more perfect attitude, could there? It's all happened for a reason, and you're still here doing well. Thank you. Well, we, we try, you know. <laughs> what, else can we, what else can we do? So um, why don't we first start by uh, uh, kind of telling the audience um, where you are in your life today, kind of what you have going on, and, uh, and then we'll work backwards, and uh, as I say, rewind your life a bit. Okay. So today I am a business owner. Uh, like I said, I've authored a few books and I help other people get published as well, which is a beautiful thing. Um, I have purchased my own home, which is a big deal. And um, I am an empty nester. I have a daughter who is in her junior year of college that I couldn't be more proud of. And I am sitting here freezing in Rochester, New York, because it is winter time and it is snowing outside. And I scratch my head wondering why I decided to stay here after <laughs> um, all of these years and not move somewhere where it's warmer because I'm not a fan of the snow. And it's not my favorite uh, time of year and every year I say to myself well you stayed because you're going to spend the winter somewhere warm and the the career that I've chosen which is you know um, working in virtually with everybody instead of having to be face to face um, allows me to make money wherever I am as long as there's Wi-Fi and I still sit here in the middle of winter and I scratch my head wondering why well, that's an interesting topic then, because it is uh, there's the winter hasn't actually started yet, so there's still time to get out. What would uh, what would give you the impetus to uh, uh, to get out for some sig significant period of time to make the winter a little bit more tolerable in Rochester? Yeah. What would what would what would what change would that for thing? you? Um. I probably work. So I've actually been working on doing some retreats in places in the South <laughs> um, or, you know, conferences and things like that, trying to arrange some speaking engagements. Um, and like I said, workshops and, and things like that, because 
I would then not feel guilty about leaving and I would be, you know, obviously making money while I was doing that and wouldn't have to um, feel bad about going on vacation. <laughs> what else uh, do you envision for uh, uh, what you're doing career-wise in your life? What, what else are you working on? You mentioned the retreat. Yes. So I actually have, um, you know, there's, there's obviously more books for me in the works. I'm actually working on one right now and that's, that's always fun. I have clients that will be published in the new year, which is great. Um, I'm offering the opportunity for, I've been in, in creation mode and creating some programming so that people can make, so that the publishing process becomes something that people can do themselves. And including the marketing piece, because a lot of them get tripped up there. And that has been beautiful. I'm a teacher by trade. Um, I have been a trainer for, it was my very first career uh, way back when. And so I love to teach, and that has been something that has always been a focal point for me, and I'm finally at a place where I get to create and teach all at the same time. Cool. So yeah. if somebody came, somebody came to you out of the blue and said, I'd like to write a book, what were the things that you would, uh, the the guidance you would give them just briefly in terms of whether this is something they should under undertake, what would you talk to them about? Sure. So there's a couple of things. Yeah. Um, I would have them decide that, you know, determine their goals for the book. And by, because this isn't for the faint of heart, writing a book is going to be the most vulnerable thing anyone does. Um, it's worse than getting naked in front of people. It's worse than, um, you know, anything else because you're putting your heart and soul into writing for the entire world to judge for all of eternity, basically. Right. And that is a pretty vulnerable thing. And if somebody's not capable of that or isn't sure that they want to do that, then I don't recommend they start writing a book. Um, and so I, I always encourage them to figure out their goals first. And then I have them identify their ideal reader. And once they have that avatar, if you will, um, then I usually tell them to write the book as they're writing a letter and to that person or to that avatar so that they are using the language and vocabulary and mood and tone and all of those things that will be appealing to their ideal reader. Um, that helps us create some marketing gold, if you will, afterwards, because readers usually will say things like, I feel like she was in my head, or I had no idea anybody else knew what I felt, um, things like that, and that you can't ask for more as a, as a marketer. Um, and so, and then just to write the book, and we can edit afterwards. We can organize and edit and put it in chapters and all those good things, clean up, you know, grammar and all that after they're done writing. Um, so many authors or wannabe authors get so hung up on the grammar piece and I'm just not a good writer and everything. You don't have to be. And that's what we pay editors for. So um, write what you have to say and we'll clean it up so that it sounds well and can be received in the way that you wanted it to be. Yeah, I would imagine that so often I have this tendency too to self-edit as you go along can really slow you down. 
Absolutely. So you'd mentioned number three was that you are a survivor. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about your uh, upbringing in terms of uh, what happened in in life that was that was impactful. Yeah. So I was um, as a ten year old. I uh, my father passed away when I was ten, and um, it was. uh, you know, of course, it was, it was a tragedy um, for any family to lose their patriarch, if you will. And however, I have been very blessed because of it. Um, you know, I we ended up having a little bit more financial security because my dad was smart enough to have things like life insurance. And so my mom was able to be around and take care of us and helped, you know, was really hands-on raising us, which was great. And um, I, it all, then she, she also got remarried and my stepdad is an amazing man. He's probably one of the best human beings I've ever met. And he gets to be a part of my life every day. And so I'm very grateful for that blessing. And that's, um, what I had said earlier that yes, there have been challenging things in my life. However, uh, really good things have come from those challenges. So so let me ask you, Sheila, um, as much as you can remember, emotionally, how did you handle the passing of your father at 10 years old? It's obviously there's no good age and it's never easy, but how was, how was all that, process the mourning and the grieving process of losing your father when you're so young uh, sure well here's the thing it's he was sick for almost a year um and he was in the hospital sick so he was um by the time he died you know he was a man who was five foot ten and probably normally weighed about 150 pounds and and he weighed about 95 pounds when he died he was blind in both eyes he had suffered a series of strokes. I mean, he was only 35 years old. Um, he died of an autoimmune disorder that actually wow. his, you know, blood vessels ate themselves. Um, they attacked themselves. And so he kept throwing blood clots. He had about 45 strokes before he died. And wow. um, so in those seven or eight months that he was sick, he was in the hospital most of the time. My mom was in um it would go to the hospital every day and my grandmother moved in with us and she took care of us and she wasn't my favorite person. We'll just put it that way. And so when my father died, although it was very sad and it was tragic that he died, I was at least getting one of my parents home and my grandmother was going to be able to move out. (laughs) So to be honest with you, that was, that was the reality of it. Um, My dad was a heavy drinker. And um, by some definitions, he would probably be labeled an alcoholic, a functional alcoholic, of course. Um, But there was also, you know, that comes with its own stuff, right? So again, um, not knowing what would have happened in the future, but knowing what could have happened in the future, I feel very blessed that I was protected. Um, And so even at 10 years old, that was, I was going to get back a normal life because for the last you know, eight months or so, it was anything but normal. And um, so, yeah, so that, that's, I've never really defined myself by that. And I was so young that 
it just became normal not to have anybody around. And my mom didn't get remarried until I was a senior in high school. So I left shortly thereafter to go to college. So I really, um, you know, you don't mourn what you don't know. So I don't know what it would have been like to have a man or a father figure in my life what, as growing up um, because it just wasn't my experience. And your mother must have done uh, uh, quite a good job of providing stability for the whole family, right? She did a great job. She showed me that it was possible. So <laughs> one day when I was in a situation where I didn't want to be anymore, I knew that I would be okay and I would survive because I saw her do it. Yeah, that's a great role model. So if you had to describe Sheila when you were, let's say, after you finished college and you went out into the world, what would you, uh, how would you describe yourself in terms of your opinion of yourself, your level of confidence and self-esteem? Where were you at that point? I was a know-it-all. I was 23 okay. years old. <laughs> um, I mean, that's, the, that's just the reality. I was, uh, you know, I was very full of myself. And, you know, my 48-year-old uh, mind looks back at my 23-year-old mind, and I just want to cringe um, because I thought I was so smart, and I thought I knew everything, and nobody could tell me differently. And I, you know, want to just crawl under the table every time I think about those days. Uh, at the time, I was working for the United States Army, and I was, um, you know, answering to two-star generals and, and all of that. And, you know, I would tell them regularly what I thought they should do and, and, you know, those kinds of things. Obviously not about military matters, but about the family readiness matters that I was involved in. And, you know, I look at, like I said, I look back now and I think, oh, heavens. <laughs> I wish somebody just put a sock in it. <laughs> you know? but, yeah, um, but that, that really may not be true. That really, uh, I mean, you can always say, I wish I would have had a little more tact or a little bit more uh, diplomacy, but uh, you, you, uh, that's what you learn as you get older. You can't have Absolutely. the wisdom of 48 when you're 23. Right. Uh, it's probably something more to be proud of that you were able to speak your mind and uh, speak up and, and be confident in yourself. Well, thank you. I, um, that is a, that is definitely one way to look at it. I, um, I was, I was very capable and, you know, I think that, um, I was obviously young and I was married, I married very young and I was living in Hawaii and, <laughs> you know, I, I had everything that I wanted in life and life was good. And there wasn't anything, you know, my husband was getting promoted and I was, I had a great job and we were impacting people and we were making a difference and we were volunteering, you know, for our country and all of those noble things. And so life was very good. Um, you know, certainly it was hard to be a military spouse and there were a lot of times that I was alone. Uh, but I, again, that also just showed me how self-sufficient I was and that I was capable of handling life um, by myself should I need to ever be that way. 
So continue with that. This, how long did you stay in Hawaii? Um, we were in Hawaii for three years. And okay. then um, he got stationed in Georgia. And then from Georgia, we went to Fort Drum, New York. And then from there, we went to Arkansas. And then from there, we went to Kentucky. And um, that was his last duty station. And, and when did you have your daughter? I had my daughter in Georgia. So I left Hawaii six weeks pregnant. So she's technically a Hawaiian baby. <laughs> okay. Yeah, she actually has, her middle name is Hawaiian. And um, her middle name is the Hawaiian word for beloved. And um, it was important to us that she had a little bit of Hawaii with her. Yeah, I think the climate's pretty good there right now. It's probably a little better yes. than Rochester. Absolutely. Like, I keep thinking I am scheduling a trip there one of these days. I, she's graduating from college next year, and I think I'd like to take her. And um, I hope she's not listening. But anyway, I'd like to take her to, you know, for a trip there and show her some of the places that uh, she got to see, even though she wasn't, you know, born yet, but that she got to experience. And um They've since torn our house down, so I can't show her that. <laughs> but, <laughs> but um, yeah, I'd love to go back. So continue with the story about how things progress. You're moving all over the place. You're raising a daughter as well. Were you continuing to, to, to um, work active duty military while raising a family? Well, I was an active duty military. I, I worked for a division of the Army. Um, that was preparing soldiers, their family members, and DA civilians for life, basically, and management skills. The Army had found out that uh, it was actually a readiness issue, that most spouses were ill-prepared for life and, and were not self-sufficient enough. And there were a lot of young soldiers that were being thrust into leadership positions that, couldn't, that really lacked the skill. So they created 41 life skills courses and management courses that um, we taught and um, to help prepare and create a more ready, you know, actually military force. Um, so and now I was involved in that for 10 years. Um, most of the time I was professional development coordinator, but I did train the trainers. I was a master trainer. Um, you know, all of those things. So it was a beautiful way to start my career, if you will, or this, this path that I've been on for self-improvement, because I got to see at a very young age what happens when you give somebody a tool or a skill that will help them change their life. And you saw them walk into a room with their eyes pointed down towards the floor and their shoulders a little bit slumped and they walked out and their heads were up and their shoulders were back and they had a, a little gleam in their eye because they they, they were walking away with something that was going to help them be better people. And um, I, I kind of got addicted to that, that feeling. I love that look in people's eyes. And so I have committed to having an entire life dedicated to helping people get that look in their eye. Wow. And so you did that uh, with the military for 10 years? I did. I did. And then what was your next transition? Then I transitioned into a middle school theology teacher, believe it or not. <laughs> okay. And, yep. We, my husband at the time got out of the army 
and we stayed in Kentucky. We liked the area. It was safe. It was a good home. Um, and I was offered a position to teach seventh and eighth grade theology and uh, sixth grade reading shortly after we moved into this house. And um, I didn't want to do it at first. I certainly didn't feel prepared. It's not like I was, you know, a theology scholar by any means. Um, and I, I honestly felt, I, I said no for a couple of weeks. And um, the, the nun who was the head of this, the principal of the school finally wore me down and said, Sheila, we really, really need you. Um, can you come and, and teach? And so I finally said yes. And I did that for three and a half years. And it was a beautiful experience. I loved the kids. There were so many good things that came out of that. Um, but one of the things that was so beautiful is that, you know, I went from teaching adults and, and you know, becoming an quote-unquote expert in adult learning. Um, but what I got to do with the kids is to show them how to believe in something that they couldn't see. And as I left that job and started my coaching practice a few years later, that's exactly what I asked my clients to do as the confidence coach. Um, that is, I asked them to believe in something they couldn't see, and that was usually their value. And so I used a lot of the techniques, a lot of the skills and the lessons that I taught back to those seventh and eighth graders with my clients when I opened my coaching practice. And didn't you really do the same thing in the military as well? I did. I did. I didn't have that same language. Like I said, I thought I knew everything. <laughs> All the things I've learned since then. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah. So I've had, you know, careers in, in many different ways uh, or forms, I guess, but all doing the same thing. And that's helping people, giving them tools, giving them skills uh, and helping them believe in something that they might not always believe to be true. And um, it has been quite the journey. And it's really important to get a hold of, of children, get a hold of people when they're younger. It's a little easier to actually start them on the right path and uh, wait till they've already been uh, uh, indoctrinated with so much negativity that's out there. Absolutely. Well, and that's the thing is that, I was teaching and I left uh, after three and a half years and I opened up a, well, my last year of teaching, I opened up a home staging and redesign business. I had gotten into doing some of that for my brother, who was a real estate developer at the time in Ohio, and I loved it. And I loved the creativity and it was not something, you know, talk about being told something as a child that you believe to be true that isn't. I was told by my fifth grade or my kindergarten teacher, um, I had an interview for kindergarten at a private school when I was, you know, four or five years old. And she told me that or she said that she wouldn't take me because I didn't have any imagination and I didn't know how to play because I was a product of Montessori preschool. And if you know anything about Montessori, it's all based on practical activity. Um, and so the imagination is not something to be. Um, necessarily nurtured and so my favorite thing to do at preschool was to play or to wash dishes because that was the only form of play we had and wow. so, yeah 
And so my kindergarten teacher told me she didn't want me because I didn't have any imagination and I didn't know how to be social. And, um, you know, which is hysterical because I'm quite the social being. But well, and, um, and hopefully she didn't tell you that directly. Well, she? she told it. She told my mother and I was sitting in the room. Um, and, but, you know, at five, I wasn't quite sure, you know, what all those things meant. Um, but as I grew up and realized, so I, I continually believed that I had no imagination and I had no creativity. And so when I was, you know, 30 years old and wanting to start this home staging business and this design business, which is all about seeing something that isn't necessarily created yet and then making it come true. I kept talking myself out of it because I kept saying, you don't have, you're not creative. There's no way you can do this. And um, after being very successful selling some houses and uh, not having the education yet, and then I decided to go for it. And um, I went and got accredited and all of that good stuff. Um, and then I really decided that I loved being creative. And so <laughs> that turned out to be a really big truth or something that I thought was truth that really wasn't. Uh, and um, so that was that was a good thing. But and I, I, I got a time. Glad you discovered that, Sheila. But it is really just so horrifying to me that a person of influence and everybody's adults are of influence around children that they would sit there even if they weren't talking to you that mm -hmm. they would refer to you that way that 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 had an effect uh your entire life mm -hmm. and it just uh, in fact i i was doing a podcast earlier today from uh, a, a man that was raised in Australia, and he told he told me a story that when he was going to preschool, another preschool story. His mother put him on a bus to go to preschool because she didn't have a car, and and told the bus driver he's supposed to get off at this stop. The bus driver forgot about the kid. The kid uh, uh, Michael, who I interviewed, he. He ended up at the very at the bus station at the very end, and he and somehow the bus driver took him to his home, and it took I, I don't know how long till his mother showed up, but he got this feeling that he was really not valuable. He was worthless for him to be right. to, to be forgotten about. Nobody was looking for him, and he just was stuck there with a stranger, and it had this impact on him as an entire life mm -hmm. and you know there was there was nothing evil about it but right. it's so easy to the impact on young children is can be so profound in the smallest thing most you're of absolutely them. right and i think you know those aren't yes i had that experience with my kindergarten teacher which i did end up going to that kindergarten by the way and did very well but they had special rules i had to i wasn't allowed to do the worksheets like i would take i was a very cerebral kid um i was reading by the time i was three by the time i was in kindergarten i was reading on a fifth grade level so i um i would w take forever to do worksheets and things that the rest of the class were doing so that i wouldn't have to go play so <laughs> Really? Yeah. So it got to a point where she told me, you know, when it when center time was over, that I had to go play regardless of whether I was finished or not. 
and um, you took a dive. I did, I did. So, <laughs> um, but I, you know, I think that I, my my dad and I had a, an incident when I was because I was this reader and I constantly had a book in my hand and he really wanted me to be more well-rounded. I was seven years old and he told me that I had an option that I could, um, that I had to play a sport and that I could choose soccer or I could choose softball, but I had to pick one. And I looked at him and said, I don't want to do either. And he said, that wasn't one of your options. So if you're not going to choose, then I'm going to choose for you. And I'm going to, you know, go buy you a baseball glove and you're going to learn how to play softball. Well, he literally did all of that. And I, the very first practice, I went out to the um, field. I wouldn't go out to the field. I wouldn't get out of the car. He picked me up. I'm crying, stopping. And he left me on the ball field. And <laughs> I just kept screaming, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be here. Um, anyway, I, I was no bigger than the bat. And if you can imagine that, my strike zone was very small. And so I, the entire season, I, and I actually turned out to love the game. I played up until I was, you know, a junior or so in high school. So um, it's something that I learned to love. But at the time, I was not very happy about it. Um, at the very last game of that season, my strike zone was so small, I walked every time I was on base. There, you know, I never made contact with the ball, with the bat. Um, you know, it, it was just, I mean, that was just the reality of it. So I was always on base, um, and I could run fast and, and, you know, I would score, but that was not because of my own doing. Um, but here's the thing is that the last, the very last game, I swung the bat and I actually hit the ball and the ball kind of probably dribbled to the pitcher and I'm running towards first base and I've got tears streaming down my face. I was so excited that I hit the ball. And I got, of course, I got thrown out at first. It was no big deal. And I'm just sobbing. And I was so excited um, that I just hit the ball. That was like so exciting. Well, my dad totally took it the wrong way. And he came over and he yanked me off the field and he started screaming at me that I, there is no crying in baseball and that you, that's a poor sport. And how could I do that? And I he was so disappointed and he went on and on. And I just kind of looked at him and I cleared my tears out of my eyes. And I was just like, but daddy, I'm so happy that I finally hit the ball. And that's really the joy that came. And again, he just reiterated, there's no crying in sports that you need to be a good. And I was like, dude, I, you know, <laughs> <laughs> so that was the very first time that I learned that you don't show emotion um, when things, whether they were good or bad, that you needed to not show your emotion. And, you know, it, it was reiterated when I was 10, when he died and my mom um, in her, you know, stoicness, I guess, in, in the moment, and I understand today what she meant, um, but at the time, I was 10, and I was crying the day of his funeral before we were leaving, and of course, I was probably being a dramatic kid, and it's like, oh, I can't believe I'm burying my dad today, you know, kind of thing, and she looked at me, and she said, there is going to be a time and a place for that. Today is not it. Dry your tears, and for the second time in a very short amount of time, um, I was told that you needed to not show emotion and that if it, if you just made, needed to make it look good. And so when, as I was forming and as I was going further in life, when I went to get married, I was marrying an army officer. 
And again, his engagement gift to me was that I, a, a manual, uh, the officer, military officer's guide to, you know, etiquette. And I was reading it and I was horrified. I was like, this is not me. This is not what I want for my life. This that, is was, that was your engagement gift? Yeah, from him. Um, <laughs> and so, but in that, it was all about put a smile on your face, make everything look good. You know, you're here to support him and that's your goal. That's, that's what you need to do. And it didn't really, and you know, there were some incidents throughout that, that first year of marriage where I would say things because I was pretty outspoken. And again, I knew everything. Um, and that was totally went against protocol. And I was called on the carpet by commanders and, you know, things like that. And, uh, I learned really quickly that you put a smile on your face and you made it look good and it didn't matter what was happening at home. And, um, that was, you know, just what we did. And, um, so after years of having a very dysfunctional marriage and an unhealthy marriage, um, needless to say, I would never say anything to anybody. I would never imagine that it was anything but what was in my head basically because we don't tell people when things aren't good and we don't show emotion and we just do what we do and we get the job done. And um, that turned out to be very detrimental. Uh, it put me in a very dangerous situation for a long time and uh, didn't, couldn't even see it as not being an option. You know, leaving was never going to be an option uh, because that's not what we do. And, um, but that started back when I was seven years old on a baseball field, being told that we don't, we don't cry. We don't tell people, you know, we don't show that side of ourselves. So, um, it's been quite the journey to learn and undo all of that since then. Yeah, what's interesting, Sheila, thank you for, for sharing that is that, uh, you know, that's first of all, a very masculine message. Mm -hmm. Women don't usually get as 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 much of that message of don't show any emotions as you know. It, certainly, growing up, same thing. You know, the only emotion that you're as a boy you're allowed to show was was anger. Anything mm -hmm. else was being vulnerable. But you know, to to say that you can't show emotion that if you can't show emotion at your father's funeral. Right. When the hell? What was the good time to show it? Right. I mean, <laughs> I, I, mean I, 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 I got the idea that, uh, well, I don't. I actually don't get the idea that yeah. uh, you have to put on a good little face, and so I guess it's so nobody else is uncomfortable with you. But well, it's, you know, and I think that that is appearance is everything, right? And um, you know, falling apart is not was never an option. And it was always, you know, and I don't fault my mom for that. I, I understand where her, that sure. came from um, in her life. And, you know, but it was, it was, I grew up, you know, under the, uh, I guess you'd say the, the premise that we needed to do the right things and make everything look okay because we didn't want to give the impression that mom couldn't handle it. And um, because she was a single mom, you know, as a widow and, and raising three children, I had two younger brothers. And, you know, so we never wanted to make her feel 
we didn't want to embarrass her. We didn't want her to be ashamed of us. We didn't, you know, so we tried to live um, in a way, and not that there was, you know, it was difficult to do that, but, but again, it was the message that appearance is everything. Yeah. And, you know, and, and that as I, into adulthood, when things were not okay, and I, but I still, nobody knew. I would never tell anybody because, I mean, not even my, my parents or, or anybody. It was just something you dealt with. And this is, you know, the cards that you were dealt and just play them. Um, and, and so that, you know, really hurt in a lot of ways, my, you know, progress. And, and as I stepped out of that life and realized that it's okay, that I can show emotion, it is okay to not be okay. Sometimes it is okay to be in the middle of a mess and not have everything figured out. Uh, and if there's people that don't like that, and you know, I've been warned by many people not to air my dirty laundry and all of those good things. And I'm okay with them being upset about that because that's not helping anyone. Um, I said at the beginning of the podcast that one of the things that's very important to me is to share what I've learned. And as a recovering perfectionist, I, uh, I definitely want to share those lessons with people. And when I wrote my very first book, you had it all along six years, six years ago. Um, one of the, the basic things is that, you know, perfection does not exist. And therefore the striving of it, you know, I would strive to be perfect because I felt like less every time. And um, all yeah. that does perpetuate. You never can win. Yes, you you it perpetuates self esteem problems and confidence issues, and that is not anything I wanted to be a part of anymore. Um, so yeah. And you know that that theme I've I've seen so often in people that I've worked with in terms of in terms of a woman being in a marriage and not and the marriage not working not being treated well not being treated respectfully mm -hmm. and and nobody else knows and then something happens uh, you know the, the the husband cheats or something happens it blows up and they get divorced but the, the story that i hear all the time is that nobody everybody thought things were perfect we had to put mm -hmm. up this facade and uh, that's a tough life to live because it it's you're, you're living you're saying i'm i'm supposed to live a lie because things are supposed to look a certain way and no they're not they're not supposed to look any certain way you're supposed to uh, you know in a marriage uh you're in a marriage because you're better together together than you are apart and you can and you can create things that you couldn't create individually and you know whether that relationship works for for six months or six years or sixty years. You know it's right. it, it's uh, if you're not going to be honest about it, if you can't be honest about it, or you feel that your duty is to is to continue on no matter what. Mm -hmm. You know, and again, we can talk about the the patriarchy, but it's, it's certainly that's where it comes from in terms of in terms of uh, male culture that. Uh, that uh, this is you're supposed to do your job you know mm -hmm. do your duty and uh, what I had an interview last week 
that's that's out now by a woman that was in a fundamentalist cult and her husband had uh, there were 25 wives oh my and uh and there was a, there was absolutely no value put to any any one of the wives or anybody except for the husband you right. talk about something that's it takes it to the extreme mm-hmm. um but i just yeah i thank you for for sharing your story because there are for everyone like you that gets out the other side and realizes what's uh, what's possible in your life and what you can create i think there's there's a hundred or a thousand they're still stuck you know it's changing a lot but some things aren't changing fast enough what would you and we're we're almost out of time it's kind of flown by sheila <laughs> Let, and i think there's some more that we'll have to say for the next for the next podcast for part two but right. what would you tell a young a young woman getting out of college like your daughter mm-hmm. uh, in terms of uh, uh, how to carry on with life and to create uh, and create a healthy functioning life what advice would you give her well i think you know for as cliche as it sounds is to stay true to themselves and um you know not back down when somebody presents an opposing opinion if that's something that's important to you um to lose the sense of your value is never okay and if that other person cannot support that, then they're not the right person for you. And that's okay too, to know that not everybody that's going to be in your life is supposed to be there forever. And we will take things away from people that uh, are away from our time with people that will help form us, but that doesn't mean they have to be in our life every day um, for all eternity. And that failure is actually a beautiful thing not something that will brand you as somebody not to be associated with. I couldn't agree more. Thank you. And the point I'd add, which is what you've already mentioned as well, is that when you're willing to accept help from other people, when you're willing to be, again, to be vulnerable and to share and to, uh, and to get some reflection, get some coaching, get some therapy, whatever support you need, where you're not you're not figuring that uh, that it's up to you to figure it all out by yourself. Because you know, I've just I've I've learned in my life that the more I try and do it all by myself, the more mistakes I make, and the more I'm willing to actually include other people and to you know still take responsibility. I'm the one making the decisions in my life, but that uh, that the collaboration and being uh, uh, being honest about what's going on uh, gets you further ahead than uh, than uh, trying to do it all by yourself. It absolutely does. You know, one of the premises of my coaching practice is that confident people ask for help, and confidence yeah. actually comes from the word Latin word confidere, which means to trust. And so, confidence is truly not self-esteem. Confidence is trusting that you will be supported. And I know that's true because we're sitting here having this conversation. So you and I have both been supported throughout our entire lives in every moment, even if it didn't feel good, um, because we're sharing this one. 
And so if confident people ask for help, it's because they believe or they trust that the support they need, even though they don't, it doesn't always look like they thought it would, shows up. And so confidence is trusting that you will be supported and self-esteem is believing that you are worthy of the support. Right. And it, it, it always comes down to trust. Right. You know, you're, you're not going to share anything if you don't trust that, mm-hmm. that, that the universe is going to support you, you know? Right. Absolutely. Everybody else out there may, people have different agendas and different, and different preferences and uh but uh in the end if you don't learn to trust yourself yes and and by by extension other people as well to the extent that's necessary then uh, then you're kind of stuck so well absolutely and i don't think that you can actually trust somebody else if you don't trust have a certain innate trust in yourself because right. when you don't trust that you can make a good decision um, because of the past or, you know, even your present, then you can't extend that to somebody else. It's, it's not unlike love, right? If you don't love yourself, you can't extend that truly to another human being. Um, Absolutely. Until you figure that out. So I think they work the same way. Yeah, it's all kind of magical, isn't it? It really is. Sheila, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Uh, I know that uh, the people listening will benefit a lot from your example. I'll put in the show notes uh, all of your information for people that have an interest in contacting you as well. But uh, uh, it's been inspiring to hear of your story and, and how well that you're doing and what you've created in your life. So thank you very much for, uh, for being here. Well, thank you for having me, Dan. It's been a pleasure. Okay. Thanks for listening to This Is Personal, Rewinding a Life. If you like today's show, please subscribe, leave a review, and share it with your friends. All of that would be greatly appreciated. You can find me at dansimon.co on Instagram, dansimontv, or Twitter, at dansimontv. Thanks for listening to the show today. New show will be out on Monday. Have a great week.